I'm Tim Rogers, uh, lead pastor here at Grace Point. Thank you for making your way here to the church this morning. Um, thank you, Kevin and Greg and company, for leading us this morning. Ellie, you did a tremendous job up here. Well done. I don't know where you got to. You're somewhere around here. But thank you, Ellie, for, uh, for what you do. Um, and welcome to our uh, series that we're calling The Lost Art of Friendship. This is part eight of nine in a series that we're doing. And the premise of this series is really built on the idea that there are some things that we can and I believe should learn about how we relate to one another, uh, that we can learn from the earliest church when the church was just being formed and figuring out how they made it as a church through some great external and internal pressure. And there were some things that Paul, in particular, wrote to the young church to say, this is how you should act to one another. He gave some really big ideas. Love one another, bear one another's burdens, do not judge one another, do good to one another, instruct one another, speak truth to one another, etc., etc. Now this morning, we get to dive in a little bit into something that you may or may not call friendship but it does fit within the one another's. And this morning, I think it's fitting, because of the time of year that we're in, as we're getting into Thanksgiving and into Christmas, that we do a little bit of a deeper dive onto the issue of family, and the family that you connect with, and the family that you relate to. So here's what I love. Um, it was George Burns who said this about family, because if we're honest, we have a complicated relationship with family. And here's what George Burns said about family. Happiness is having a large, loving, caring, close-knit family in another city. But isn't that about true sometimes, that with family comes complexity, and with Thanksgiving and Christmas on the horizon comes this complexity arising again, and you've seen, I'm sure, those signs around maybe your home, you know, friends are welcome, and, you know, family by appointment, or what have you, right? Like, there's this reality that you're born into the family you're born into, and you can't help it, and it's just the way it is, and you got to realize all of a sudden, I have to live with and figure out how to make this family work. And we are also in a period of time where family changes over time. And all of a sudden, your family is no longer the way your family was when you were younger. Maybe your parents have separated. Maybe a, a parent has died. Maybe, uh, you know, a remarriage has gone on or whatever. That your family is changing, and there's a changing dynamic in the family as we go on and on. And, and so we have to ask the question, why should we zoom in on the family at all? And what is the value of talking about family related to one another's, you know, for the church. Why does it matter to the church how the family functions and how we treat one another in the family unit? Because that's my interest this morning. And in order to answer that, I want to take you back uh, to the first century. I'm not even going to go into the Bible yet. We're certainly going to get there. But I want to back up for a minute and listen to what a first century writer, a, a philosopher, a guy named Didymus, Arius Didymus, wrote about the family and the value of the family and the importance of how we see the family. All right? So ready for, for some first century reading? All right, here we go. This will be fairly simple. For the household, this guy writes, Didymus, for the household is like any small city. If, at least as is intended, the marriage flourishes and the children mature and are paired with one another, another household is founded and thus a third and a fourth and out of these a village and a city. Okay, fairly simple idea so far. Marriage flourishes, they have children, those children grow up, those children meet one another, they have marriages and the families continue to grow into a third and a fourth and out of these all of a sudden they live in villages and then into a city and now he keeps going. After many villages come to be, a city is produced. It just makes sense, population growth. So just as the household yields for the city, the seeds of its formation, thus also it yields the Constitution, not the Constitution of the United States, but the way that it is made up. Thus, 
The household yields for the city the seeds of its formation. The city, big picture, is made up of a bunch of small family units, is what he's saying. That if you want to know how the city will work, look at how each individual family unit values one another. Because that will make up the constitution or the identity or the ethos or values of that city. In other words, if you grew up with an abusive father, how do you think you are going to lead your company? If you grew up with a mom who is super creative and very generous and the most hospitable person in the world, how do you think you're going to lead your company? Because the impact of your parents in your smallest family unit makes up the constitution of the very town, village, cities that we create. And so when you think about the church, why should the church look at the family unit? Because the church is made up of families. However you identify as them and how you function in your family makes up the constitution of the church. How you see your father or your mother or your siblings or the people who work with you even impacts how you see faith and how we treat one another. And so why do we focus in on the family? Not just because we think it's a good idea, but because we are made up of families. No matter how you identify as a family. And by the way, that has changed over the years, hasn't it? This is a significant reality that while the family that Didymus wrote about in the first century was fairly straightforward, one might argue, the family unit in North America in particular has changed significantly over the years. And while people may have read back in the first century philosophers and gotten ideas about how the family unit should work, things are different now. You should know back in the first century there were people who were writing about the family all the time. Every people group actually had a kind of a household code for how a family should work. The Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, even the Jews. They had ideas around, here's what a family unit should look like. Here's how dads should treat their kids. Here's how husbands should treat their wives, etc. And every people group had their own household code. The question is, what about us today in the 21st century in North America? How is it that we are informed about how the family unit should work? And I would argue that while you may not read philosophers, I think you watch philosophers. I think you've watched philosophers like these people. Little House on the Prairie. A philosophy of how the family should work. You may have watched these philosophers, leave it to Beaver, about this particular family unit and the values, and all of a sudden a mom image picks up significantly in our world because of leave it to Beaver. You may have watched these philosophers, the Brady Bunch, and a, a mixed family coming together all of a sudden, how that works and what that means. And you may have watched these philosophers as well, Hey, what you talking about, Willis? Right? Different strokes. You may have seen these people. You may have seen these philosophers as well writing about Full House and the, the twins and the excitement and dynamic uh, environment that goes on in there. You may have seen these philosophers as well. All right? The Simpsons, a long, long running uh, thing. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. Most recently, you may have seen this, one of the most popular shows right now, This Is Us, impacts how you see and how you interact with the family, and maybe the best show that I know of right now that summarizes how we see in North America the family is this one called Modern Family by ABC. One of the most uh, diverse and varied views of how the family in North America functions, and what we know about media one would argue that media shapes culture. I might argue that it reflects culture, but I would certainly suggest that it reinforces its values, at the very least. 
I don't know who, which comes first, the chicken or the egg on this one. I don't know if the shows create the culture, if they reflect the culture, but I will tell you that they reinforce it. Modern family is just a hair different than Little House, right? <laughs> this is Us is a little bit different than Leave it to Beaver. And it reflects the reality that in North America today, the family unit has changed significantly over the years. And so in order to understand how a family should function, we need to be able to understand our culture today before we even get back into the world that I want to take you to in the first century to see what Paul wrote to the early church about family. And here's what we know. The Pew Research Group put together some studies, and they basically support the, the change of TV shows that we've seen over the years. Check out this chart if you can, and, and I'll explain it to you if you can't quite see the details of it. It's okay if you can't, but here's what they're saying, that there is no longer one dominant family form in the United States of America. In 1960, at the height of post-World War II baby boom, there was one dominant family form, and at that time, 73% of all children, that's the chart on your left, the top kind of tan bar, 73% of all kids were living in a family with two married parents in their first marriage. Okay, that was 1960, 73%. By 1980, take that tan bar over one to the middle, by 1980, 61% of children living in this type of family. And today, 2014 data is on the far right, that tan bar has gone down to less than half, that is 46%, two kids living in a home with parents who are in their first marriage. Their point is, as that decreases, the diversity of families also increases because it's by default it has to. And their point is, we no longer in the United States today have a dominant family structure. There is no more one majority form of how families should be seen, which is where modern family taps in. Another chart shows this same thing as well from 1960 to 2012. The, the deep blue on your left um, is indicating about 65, I think if I'm right, about 65% of families in 1960 were again married with only the father working. Now in 2012 data, all the way, you know, the, the next little blue thing over here, 22% of families are in that category of um, married with kids living there with only the father working. Our working dynamics has changed. Women have gone to work. I'm not condemning it. I'm just observing this fact has changed, and it is imp not just that women are at work, where children are living, how they live, who they live with, um, how our marriages survive or don't survive. My point is simply this. The family in North America has changed drastically over the last 30, 40 years. If, I, I don't have time to track all the data, but I will tell you in the 70s and 80s, significant changes happened and we have we have kind of been living in a brand new reality for the last 20 30 years the family is not going to go back to the little house on the prairie days right the ship has sailed on that the ship has sailed on the majority of kids growing up in a home where they have two parents with only a dad working that ship has sailed. We are now in a very diverse, and you know it from your experience. You know it from the TV shows you watch. You know it from the data that we have. We are in a very diverse culture related to family. And so the question becomes, how can you even talk about family, and what is our goal? Is our goal to go back to Little House on the Prairie? Is that what the church should be about? Hey, let's get back to the way things were in the 60s and 70s and the good old days. That's the way we should go. But we know that that ship has sailed. That's not going to happen. And so what do we do in the culture that we find ourselves in now, the people that you interact with and I interact with? And this is why I want to go back outside of our time and space into 
the first century again, to look at what Paul wrote to a little church in Ephesus. And the reason I want to go here is this, not because I want to take us back to live in the first century, that will be impossible, but here's what I want to suggest to you, and you can decide if this is true or not. I want to suggest to you that when we look at what Paul wrote in the first century, it was so bold and so different that the differences and boldness of it, we can take and apply that to where we are today in the diversity and uniqueness of all of what it means to be family today. And so I want to take you to the first century, not because I want to go back to Little House on the Prairie, not because I want to go back to Leave it to Beaver, because we're not going to, but I want to go back because what Paul had to say about family profoundly was different than the cultural messages that were being heard at that time. And the differences is where I think the value is for you and for me in however we relate to our family today. So I'd like to invite you to turn in a Bible. There's a Bible in the pew near you if you don't own one to the little book, little letter to Ephesians that Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus. But Ephesians um, comes, is about the the right two-thirds of your Bible. If you don't own a Bible, it's our gift to you in the pew, by the way. But Ephesians chapter 5 is where I want to begin, and I'm going to start in a second here on verse 21 of Ephesians chapter 5. You should know that uh, this section of scriptures is what Martin Luther, back in the, back in the day, um, he used to call um, in German the Haustafel, or the household codes. That um, What Paul is doing is he's writing to people, like I mentioned earlier, He's writing to now Christians, but the people in the first century would have expected what I'm calling household codes. They would have expected to read, oh, this is the way that we treat our husbands, our wives, the men and women, the children that are in our family, in our family unit, because that's what the Jews were doing, that's what the Romans were doing, that's what the Greeks had done, that's what the Persians had done, that over and over and over again. So Paul is actually giving to the church... These people who are becoming Christian, he is giving them something that they would have expected because everyone else around them had rules or regulations or ideas of how does the church or how does family work. And so when Paul writes in Ephesians 5, 21 on into chapter 6, and when he writes in Colossians, we're not going to go there this morning, what he's tapping into is a cultural vein in which they would have already been expecting, oh, okay, we're going to be a new people How should we act in our families? They couldn't turn on modern family. They couldn't turn on this is us. They didn't have any of that. And so how do you get information about how family should work? And you get them from these household codes. And so when Paul begins in chapter 5 and verse 21, he says this. Submit to one another. Submit to one another. And if you're reading in your Bible, it says out of reverence for Christ. And so Paul begins and he opens up his household code with this idea of submit. And let me just tell you at the beginning, this is an absolute game changer. This is an absolute game changer. I want you to listen for a minute to what Josephus wrote from his household codes. Josephus wrote to the Jews, by the way. Josephus said this to the Jews. He said, the woman, says the law, is in all things inferior to the man. Has that a good start for a lunch conversation? See how that goes for you today over lunch, okay? This is what was being communicated to the, to the Jews by Josephus, who was a, um, a historian and a philosopher in the first century. The woman is in all things inferior to the man. This is the starting point. Let her accordingly be submissive, not for her humiliation, but that she may be directed, for the authority has been given by God to the man. 
Isn't that a great, great thing? Should I just dismiss right now? Let that one sit for a little while. So this is, in the, in the context of Josephus and what the Jews would have expected, Paul is writing to people who had been Jews and some who were Gentile coming to faith. The same guy named Didymus, who I, I read his quote earlier today, he talked about the family, um, and he basically said this, that the relationship of parents to children is like a monarchy, He's saying, parents need to treat children as in, you are the king and queen, and they are in your kingdom. That's pretty awesome, right? It's a pretty sweet deal. A lot of families work that way now, right? A lot of kids are just bowing down to mom and dad all the time, recognizing their regal authority in the home, but this is, this is how it was for Didymus, who wrote in the first century. And then he went on to say this, the relationship of husband to wife is aristocratic. <laughs> That's so great. In other words, think of an aristocrat. The aristocrat has all the money, wealth, power, and influence, and the other people don't. So how many, when's the last time that your, your wife has said to you, you know, hey, honey, you have so much influence and power and thought you are so wise and you handle all the money. Like, I am so glad that I'm married to you. Moving on. Because this is how he came. Like, this is how he said it should be. This is, again, this is a household code of what was going on in the first century. That this is how wives should understand their husbands to be. They have it all. Like, they have the power. They have the control of the influence. And then they say, if children should relate to one another in a democratic way. Like, don't kill each other yet. Kind of get it together in a democratic way. So in this context, and I could go on and talk about what Aristotle wrote and all that, but all of it is still the same thing. In which... The power in the first century in particular, the power in the family, power was meant to be um, controlled and brought in so that I, particularly as a male, that I can control my family. That power is meant to be used so that I can become more powerful. And I'm given ideas on how to use my power to control my wife and to control my kids and to control the slaves who work for me. And this is the way that household codes inevitably shape out. And so when Paul writes to the early church, people who had been Jews who were coming to faith in Jesus, when he writes to the, to the early church who were Gentiles who had been used to Roman and, and Greek thought, and he opens up his comments with, submit to one another. Are you crazy? This is categorically different this is a game-changing thought from the beginning about how Christian family should see each other. And the reason that he starts with submit to one another is because of what the end of the verse says. Out of reverence for Christ. That this family, as he's writing to this young church, young church, when you see your family... When you see the people who are closest to you, I want you, first of all, to think about what, is, what are the implications of Christ's life and death for you as a husband, as a wife, as a child, as a slave or a slave owner in that context. What are the implications out of reverence for Christ? What does this mean? Because I would argue this, that submission is yielding voluntarily in love. That submission is yielding voluntarily in love. Being able to say, I am able to do more, but I'm going to submit myself to you because I love you. Like, I'm able to think beyond what you think I can, but I'm going to willingly choose to voluntarily submit myself in this space. And so this is why Paul writes to women now in verse 22. 
He says, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands and everything. Our cultural sensibilities are shocked today by this statement. I don't know of anyone who, who, who would not be shocked to hear that if you were to hear that on the news or hear that on This Is Us or on Modern Family, like, hey, wives, you should submit to your husbands. It's great. Yeah, that's not going to come across. So we are shocked by that. But I will tell you what's shocking to the first century. What's shocking to the first century is that women are even addressed. Truthfully, that, that, that is shocking because no one, there's no household codes, there's no Jewish writers, there's no Greek writers, no Roman writers, no Persian writers who are writing to women ever. They don't even address them. They talk to men about how to own and manage and, and bring power in so that they can treat, the, so that their wives will treat them correctly. But they don't even talk to women and so Paul is shocking two things. Number one, that we should submit to one another. And secondly, that he's going to address women at all is indeed shocking. And the reason he does that, I believe, is he recognizes by default the value of women. Because Jesus did the same thing. He addressed women and raised the bar on the value and dignity of humanity, both men and women, slave and free, Jew and Gentile. He raised that bar. And Paul says, out of submission to Christ, out of reverence for Christ, submit to one another. With the implication being that Jesus is doing the same things that women I'm asking you to do. That is a very important thing I want you to understand. In 1 Corinthians 15, uh, Paul talks about Jesus' relationship to his heavenly Father, to God the Father. And he says Jesus submitted himself or subjected himself to God. It's the same word used in the same way. And so women out here listening to me or listening online later, before you think that this is meant to, to suppress you, I want you to know that the same way that Paul described the relationship of Jesus, the second member of the Trinity, to the Heavenly Father, is the same way that he's describing your relationship to a husband. And is not inferior. There's nothing inferior about Jesus as a second member of the Trinity. Are you kidding me? There is an equality in that space of value and dignity. And so this is not meant to be, hey, Women, we know that you're just not able to figure it out. So you know, the smartest thing to do is to submit to the smart people in your life who are the husbands. All right? That's not the way this is read at all. Not in the first century. This is dramatically different that Paul would even address women, invite them in, and here's what he asks. Will you voluntarily work with your husband? Will you voluntarily yield in love? Because that's what Christ did. When he could have raised his hand and said, I don't really want to die, I'm not going to go to the cross. We know he didn't want to on his own, but he was willing to yield to the will of his Father. That's what he's asking. Women, will you voluntarily yield to your husband? <laughs> well, I don't know, will I? Because then look what he says to men next, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives. <laughs> if you have read this passage before, this is kind of what you expect, but I'm telling you, listen, there are zero, zero first century texts that ask or, or demand men love their wives. None. Men don't love their wives. Men control their wives. The wives are there to serve them. And so Paul is introducing a brand new idea to men. And so while it may be normal for you to hear this, I'm just telling you, Paul is introducing a brand new cultural idea. Men... 
Here's something new for you. You're new. You are Christian now. You're not Jewish now. You're not Greek now. You're not Roman now. Men, listen to me. Love your wives. What? No one expected that. And then he gives two ways to love your wives. He says, just as again Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing of the water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. And then in the same way, verse 28, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. So he gives two examples. He said, I want you to love Men, I want you to love your wife to the death, and I want you to love her in life. I want you to be willing to die for her, and I want you to give all that you have in your life, every day, every piece of energy you have that comes to your body, every way you think about yourself first, when you're hungry, you eat, when you're tired, you sleep, when it itches, you scratch, all those things that you respond to, love your wife first before you eat, first before you sleep, first before you scratch, that the intuition that you have, your strengths intuition will be for the benefit of the woman who is in your home, of your family. Will you men voluntarily submit yourself, voluntarily yield in love to your wife? Why would you do that? You don't have to. You're probably stronger than she is physically, maybe. Maybe you think you're smarter than she is. Maybe you make all the money in the home. You don't have to. Why would you? Why would you? (laughs) Out of reverence for Christ. Because Christ sure didn't have to die for the church, but he did. And so he, he pits men and women. He says, men and women, in this new thing, right? In this new thing, this, this new way, this new way for Christians to act in their families, It's to follow Christ's example by voluntarily yielding to one another in love. That this is a brand new thing for the church to see that I have to step into a space. No one is talking about, a lot of people are talking about um, bringing power in for themselves. Men are in charge. They can kind of demand what they want. They can get whatever they want. And women have to kind of come underneath that. And Paul is saying, church, there's something new. And the reason it's new is because of what Christ has done. And women, the reason I want you to submit to and respect and honor your husbands is because this is what Christ did when he submitted to the will of his Father and went to the cross. It's not because I think you guys are terrible. It's not because I think you're inferior. Jesus was not in any way inferior to God the Father. This isn't an inferiority thing. Men, the reason I want you to love your your wives is because this is what Christ did on the cross for you. He loved the church so much that he died. He gave his greatest strength so that you could have the greatest benefit. And so I want you to, this new thing, church, I want you to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Lovingly lead, willingly serve, work together out of reverence for Christ. All this is brand, brand new. And he talks, he goes on in chapter 6 to talk about children. Look there with me. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is your first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Once again, because we don't have background, I just want to tell you, children are never addressed in any other household codes. In the first century, no one is talking to children. Basically, what they're telling children is threatening them, telling them, the men, here's how to get your children to obey them. Did you know um, the Persian fathers would treat their sons as slaves? creating a very strong and embittered and empowered culture. And so then these sons would grow up and they'd fight through that slavery piece. And what do you think they would do? (laughs) The same thing to their children as well. This is the way it was for me, son. You're going to figure this out. Because that's how I was raised. It makes up the constitution of a nation. 
And so he says to these people, children, let me talk to you for a minute. Kids, let me talk to you. There is a blessing for your future. There's something in the Christian tradition. There's hope for you. There's blessing for you. And I want that for you. And this is Paul writing to children, not just writing to a dad with all the power. And I want you to obey your parents. The reason is I want it to go well with you. That's a game-changing thought. Then he writes about slaves and masters in verse 5. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Verse 6, obey them not only to win their favor when their eyes on you, but like slaves of Christ, again, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not men, because you know that the Lord will reward anyone, everyone for whatever he does, whether he is slave or free. And then he says, masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Did you know there was a guy in the first century who wrote about the prevailing attitude of slave owners, and he said this, that every slave we own is an enemy we harbor. Every slave that we own is an enemy we harbor. Can you imagine the kind of treatment that that attitude would create? Imagine thinking about your employees that way, by the way. Every employee I have is an enemy that I harbor. Imagine that. So the, the attitude of slave owners to slaves, and the closest parallel for us as employers to employees, is not perfect, but it's close, is this idea that, again, we have power as the employer, we have power as the master, and we can treat our slaves, our employees, kind of however we want. And Paul's saying, let me rethink this with you. And he's giving to the church a brand new way of thinking about it. And this principle, this new way of people relating, is saying, instead of, you've heard me say it before if you've been here before, instead of doing... Instead of doing the rights thing, do the right thing, right? Instead of focusing about what rights you have, well, I have a right to be offended. I have a right for better pay. I have a right to be angry with this person. I have a right to, I have a right to, I have a right to. Instead of talking about your rights, talk about what's right. Instead of doing the rights thing, do the right thing. And Paul's saying, here's the new right thing. The new right thing for the church in, as how you see your family is to basically think about how do I voluntarily lead in love? Submit in love. And, and here's a question. Let me phrase this question in, in how I would phrase it now. Okay, let me kind of modernize this question. There's a question that I think about as I think about this issue. How, what does it look like for you in the family that you are identifying with? What does it look like for you to actually submit to one another? Because that's the foundation of all. And here's a question that I ask. How would I act if you were more important to me than I am to me? How would I act in my family if you were more important to me than I am to me? This is a question about mutual submission. How would I act if when I came home from work and I was exhausted and worn out, instead of me just kind of getting what I need and refilling my tank, what if I asked you what's going on for you? What if you've been nagging me for a little while that we need to go to counseling, but I'm pushing back on it because I don't think you understand me as a man, and I, you know, you women, you want to talk relationships and all that stuff, and we're just good to go work in the wood shop and go, you know, shoot things in the woods and, you know, you know do some push-ups and we're good to go. Like, we're fine. What if I would ask, what's more important to you than to me? What if you're more important to me than I am to me? How would I lead into my marriage in this way? What would that mean? Like, how would I treat our finances if your interests for the kids' future and for our future were different than mine? What would it look like as a husband, as a man, or as a woman, as a wife? If I were to ask, okay, what if your interests are more important than my interests? How can I voluntarily serve you and yield to you in love? It's the idea of Romans 12, 10, where Paul writes there, Come on, church, he says, outdo one another with honor. Outdo one another with honor. 
Honor above, honor above, honor above. Keep fighting for how do you honor the people who are in your home, in your family, because your family makes up the church, and your family makes up how people see the church. Your family impacts how people see who God is. As one family goes, so goes the village, so goes the city, so goes the world. The constitution of your family is very, very important. And so I will say this, and I'll wrap it up, that power is not meant to be consolidated in the Christian church. Power is not meant to be consolidated, but to be, but, excuse me, power is not meant to be consolidated for my benefit, but spent for yours. And this is the way that Paul sees it in the Christian church. And this is why when he says church, I want you to submit to one another. He's saying, I want you to take the power that you do have, and you do, you have influence, you have abilities, you have wisdom, you have strength. I want you to take that, church, and drastically change the culture in which you live. Because many in the culture, however they identify in their family, and we know the ship has sailed on Little House in the Prairie, and the ship has sailed on Leave it to Be, where the ship has sailed on that. We are in a brand new season. It isn't going to change, I don't think. We're not going back in time. So as we exist in families now, what does it look like for me not to consolidate the power for my benefit, but to spend it on you in my family? Can you imagine what that would be like if our churches are made up of families who think Christian toward one another, out of reverence for Christ, who didn't do the right thing, but did the right thing, who didn't just stand up and say, I don't have to, I don't need to, I, don't, I shouldn't have to, and... You know, they don't understand, but objected and pushed back and then finally said, I'm willing to submit to your will, Father, whatever it is. I'm going to voluntarily, I'm going to voluntarily choose in love to yield. And this is what Paul says to the church, church, Christians, out of reverence for what Christ has done, submit to one another in your family unit that we can be brothers and sisters in our families who think of each other first. That we can honor our parents, that husbands, wives can lovingly lead and lovingly serve one another. Not because we love it, not because we have no objections, but out of reverence for Christ. Submit to one another in love. I hope this series has been challenging for you because we have one more one another to get to next week to wrap it up. Look forward to having you back next week. Will you pray with me? Our good God and Heavenly Father, thank you for the chance to be able to jump into an ancient letter that was written to the church to help us think clearly about how the church should stand out, what it means to be Christian in our thinking, what it means to have Christ's sacrifice on the cross, impact how I lead as a husband, how I lead as a wife, how I serve as a child and in my home, and what it means to grow into this space, and how do I identify with my family in a way that expresses this voluntarily yielding in love, peace. I pray that you give us the courage to do that, to think differently about how we spend our time when we go home, the energies that we have, the way that we listen to those in our families. Give us, I pray, the courage actually to love, which is really hard to do. So we thank you for the good uh, news of this message or the hope of the gospel of Jesus that we are redeemed in our brokenness. And so for all the spaces where we 
are going to fail and going to miss it, I pray that you give us the grace to cover that and the courage to do what we know we need to do as we ask the questions about how would we treat our family if they are more important to me than I am to me. How can I not consolidate power but use it to serve those in my family? And in that doing, I pray that your name would be made known through our families, through our churches, through our communities, through our businesses, at every step of the way. And we'll ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.